God, thank you for, uh, just thank you for this week that we get to spend together at family camp. Thank you for this place. Um, God, I pray that in our uh, time together this morning that we would um, just learn a little bit more about um, these people that you have created in your image, God, and how to best serve and best love um, young adults in a, a really tricky season of life. And so I pray, Lord, that um, any of these words would be pleasing and honoring to you, and Lord, that you would just give a, just your blessing in all that this day will hold for each of us. So we pray all this in your name. Amen. Um, a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Kelsey, and I grew up coming to family camp. Um, I started coming to family camp at the young age of three and a half, and then every single summer went uh, for one week to um, to family camp with my family. So all my siblings and now my nieces and nephew will start um, have been coming to family camp with my family as well. And family camp is this home away from home for us. Um, where I had told my parents when I was little that I wanted to build a house in their backyard. And um, I feel like me working at Mount Hermon has been basically me doing that by just being in our second home. Um, I have been uh, working on Mount Hermon staff since 2008. I first started on summer staff and then was an intern for a number of years. And then um, after working at Point Loma, which is where I went to school, I went and worked there in their res life department. I came back um, as the assistant director. And so this is my 12th summer um, serving on staff at Mount Hermon. And this is my third summer as the director of youth and young adult ministry. And so um, here's the thing for this time together though. I spent a lot of time with the young adults. I love young adults. Um, they're in a really fun but tricky kind of season of life. Um, so we're gonna talk a lot about that right now. But the thing that I don't have is I'm not a parent. And I'm not, I don't know what it's like as a parent to, have, to be a parent to teenagers or to young adults. And so my hope for this hour that we spend time together is um, just to give you some information of what our current world is looking like, especially from a young adult perspective, some of the development. But my hope in all of this is that you'll end up having more conversations with either the young adults in your life, if you have your children who are now young adult age, or uh, if you're a current young adult, that you'll have conversations with your parents about what you're going through. So my hope in all of this is not to give you four steps of what, what to do out of this, but more out of set you up for more conversations to learn more. Um, my, I'm the second of four kids, and all my siblings, all of us are very different from each other. We each share a trait with like one other sibling, which is really interesting. We all relate to each other in really different ways. But um, at one point, um, my older sister, who is married and has three kids, um, it's me and then my younger brother and then my youngest sister, who's currently on Redwood staff, um, all of us were in the 20s together because we were all about three years apart. And my parents have told me that the childhood years are exhausting, the toddlers. The, young, the um, high school years are hard because of the rebellious teenage angst. But the young adult years, the 20s, were some of the hardest that they've walked through with us just because of what does it look like to have your children who are now adults and they're making adult choices. And so my mom will often say that um, your children, her children, are like having your heart just walking around the world and to know that they're now adults that are making their own choices and that's what's necessary, but that's really, really hard. And so I shared that a couple weeks ago with um, letting the audience know that my parents think that the 20s have been the hardest season to walk through as parents to myself and my siblings. And this poor mom in the, in the audience was like, it gets harder. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. I don't know what ages you have, but there's still hope though. There's still a lot of good things. Um, so in first looking at our current world and the generations that we have, um, the current young adult season is comprised of the millennials and the Gen Zers. And so before we can get to talking about those, the ones that precede it are the boomers to then the Gen X to then millennials and then Gen Z. And so a couple of things, each of the generations build off of the previous generation. Oftentimes there's a rebelling of what they've seen their, either their parents' generation do. And so part of what comprises that next generation is them wanting to be different than what had preceded it, which is an interesting um, pattern to play out. But first, the boomers, um, anyone who was born between 1944 to 1964. Um, and so a lot of the, the shaping events for that generation is post-World War II optimism. 
um, the Cold War and then the hippie movement. So there are a couple of things within the boomers of this really large generation um, that was the boom because of post-World War II and everyone wanting to settle down and have a family. Um, this generation is actually experiencing a really high growth in student debt, which is really interesting. They're not necessarily sure of all the reasons for that, but um, they believe that you should set your children on the right course, but don't necessarily plan on leaving any inheritance, which is interesting. The financial patterns of each generation plays into it as well. What followed the boomers is Gen X, and so it's also sometimes referred to as the MTV generation. <laughs> um, it's anyone born between 65 to 79. And so what's interesting about um, Gen Xers is they are actually very digitally savvy, um, but still want to do some things in person. So it's not all online yet. They'll do some things online, but they also want to go into the bank themselves rather than do it online. Um, some shaping events for this generation is the end of the Cold War, um, the rise in personal computing in the computer, and then they feel oftentimes lost between the two generations of the boomers to then the millennials, and they feel lost between the two. Um, they are trying to take care of their student debt while also taking care of aging parents. Um, there's a lot of high resources um, financially within the Gen X generation. Then what comes next is the millennials. And so the millennial term was first coined by these two guys who, it was back in 1989, they coined the term for the millennials. And it was for the impending turn of the millennium and the, how that Y2K was going to feature so heavily in the consciousness of that generation. And so it was coined many years before, but it was for the generation that was going to experience at a young age the turn of the, the millennium. Um, and so millennials, it's also referred to as Gen Y, um, but millennials is more often used. The millennials are actually split between these two because it, the years for the millennials is anyone between 1980 to 1994. And so they were going to be like the kids or the youth, young adults, that were going to experience Y2K and have some consciousness of it. Um, they are really split between the two because it's such a wide gap, 1980 to 1994, that the older end of millennials, um, they didn't experience social media until college. But then the younger, anyone born in like 92, 93, 94, social media was a big part of their high school years. So they have actually split the millennial generation between one and two because there's actually some pretty distinct differences. Anytime with a generation, the, the younger side of it will start to kind of bleed into the next generation. So they actually share some, some similarities. And so within the millennials, this generation is extremely comfortable with mobile devices, their phone, the smartphones, but they didn't necessarily, they can remember a world where they didn't have it which is really different than the Gen Z generation. So millennials remember a world where you didn't necessarily have your mobile devices. Um, they have uh, little patience for ineffectiveness. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, some of their shaping events, the Great Recession is a huge one. Um, the technological explosion of the internet and social media, and 9-11. 9-11 is a big shaping event for anyone who is a millennial because they can remember either as a kid or in their high school years. I was a freshman in high school when 9-11 happened. I can remember exactly what I was wearing. I can remember what happened on that day. And I remember thinking, this is a big shift of like listening to the news on my way to school with 9-11. What's really interesting is that this next, um, the next presidential election is going to be the first year that there are going to be voters who were not alive during 9-11. And what they're realizing is that there's a big political shift of the way that they view the world and their view of politics is really different than the generation before because they didn't experience 9-11 personally. Um, so for millennials, they experienced, they're entering the workforce, there is a high degree of financial instability. So they would rather um, have access than necessarily ownership, especially within their finances. And so the thought of buying a home isn't necessarily something as prevalent in a millennial's mind because of financial instability is just part of, part of their life with student loans and things. All right, so then we get to Gen Z. So it's anyone born between 95 to 2015. So right now, that age group is anyone who's 4 to 24, <laughs> big range. Um, but for Gen Z, the average Gen Zer received their mobile device at age 10, which is really interesting. Many of them grew up playing with their parents' smartphones or tablets, though. 
Um, they live in a very hyper-connected world, um, which plays itself out in some really interesting um, cultural ways, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, they spend, at, on average, about three hours a day on their mo mobile device. Um, what's interesting is that they're seeing a trend that for Gen Z, even though they're in the younger ages right now, that they're going to be um, more financially sustainable because they've looked back to the millennials and the Gen X and have seen the plight of their parents who have gone through a lot of financial struggles. And so they are predicting that the Gen Zers, the youngest generation right now, is actually going to be much more financially stable because it's the revolt to we don't want that to be our life, so we're going to do things differently. I think what's interesting is there, I think there could be a trend, it's more of just in the research right now, that Gen Z could also adopt the, yes, the internet is there, but we're actually going to adopt more of some old school ways of communication. And so they're seeing that it might be Gen X and millennials are much higher in the, the use of social media and the internet, and it could be that Gen Z, because they're so used to it, it's just part of their life, there could be a trend to revolting against that and saying we don't want to use it as much as our parents or the previous generations did. Um, some shaping events for them, the smartphone, social media, they've never known a country not at war. That's just part of, part of their life, um, part of their understanding of the world. And they've experienced a lot of the financial struggles of their parents. All right, so within those different generations, right now the millennials and the Gen Z are what our young adults, who our young adults are. Um, it's the younger side of millennials, and it's the older side of Gen Z. And so the shaping events within their world is really what's part of this changing culture that they're experiencing every single day. Um, I get the question often of people saying, you know, what is the hardest part of your job? What's the best part of your job? Um, I have a lot of answers for that. But one of the really interesting things is culture is always changing. And so we're always learning new things, always adapting in some ways how to best serve students when their world is constantly changing. Um, my, my sister, she shared this with my parents and I, how uh, the term the helicopter parent, um, I even just had a youth pastor uh, text me yesterday saying, I'm trying not to be a helicopter youth, pa youth pastor. And I was like, dude, that's fine. You can hover away, do whatever you want to do. You're the youth pastor. But uh, what's interesting is that my sister was saying it's no longer the trend for parents, it's no longer the helicopter parents, but it's the lawnmower parents, where they're just blazing a trail for their students to come after them, for their children. Um, and it's now the millennials, as a, I greet campers and parents, you know, all the time during the summer. What's interesting is that it's now the millennials who are bringing their, their children to Redwood Camp and to day camp. And so realizing that our, even just our mindset of how we're caring for families and parents here at family camp and um, dropping off their students is now a different ballgame of those parents who are dropping off whether they want to participate in camp with their children. And it's a different trend. It's the millennial parents who are now engaging with their students here at camp as opposed to the, the older ones. Um, another thing for millennials and especially in Gen Z, and I've seen this play out especially in working with young adults, is um, They've grown up in a world where there's the thing called the participation award. You get awarded just for participating. And what's interesting is I've noticed, um, again, it's my 12th summer working on staff, and I've started to see some different trends in the summer staff who have come to work um, over the summers. And um, one, there's a huge rise in anxiety and depression. Um, that's something that we see within students as well. Um, the amount of medication that students are on, um, as well as staff. But then also uh, the, the mindset of it's their first time, for many of them, being in a job. And for them to realize that you don't necessarily get an award <laughs> in your job just for participating. <laughs> but that's kind of a mind-blowing event for them, of like, but I did what was expected. I'm like, yeah, good. <laughs> like, um, but they live in a world where you get a trophy just for participating. And what's interesting is that now they're the ones entering the workforce, and there's some really like tongue-in-cheek funny videos of what it looks like in a job to train a millennial, and oftentimes they're wanting to just be rewarded for participating and just showing up on time. Um, but I think it's because we've, we've allowed that in giving trophies to, to everyone. And so it's interesting seeing 
the young workforce, the young adults entering the workforce, and they have that mindset of, I've gotten awards all the time, so where is it for me when I enter my job as well? All right, in thinking of young adult development, um, we first look at what, um, what precedes it. And so looking at the development that leads to becoming a young adult. Um, adolescence, it's, uh, it's short, for, or not short, it's the word that's rooted in Latin for adolescere, which means to grow to maturity. And so for someone to grow to maturity, that's what the whole term adolescence means. But what's really fascinating is that it's lengthened over time. And so adolescence starts in biology, but unfortunately it ends in culture, meaning your adolescence will start by your body saying it's time to hit puberty. And you don't really have a choice of when that happens, just kind of kickstarts. But then it ends in culture saying this is when you become an adult, or this is when you are no longer an adolescent, but now a young adult. And the fact that culture gets to define when that is isn't a good thing. It just is what it is right now. So it starts in biology, ends in culture. But there's a big confusion of adolescence, and we've seen that over the years. Um, what's really fascinating is that for adolescence to be like this window of time between childhood to adulthood, and it's this window of time to grow to maturity, um, before 1900, puberty would start at 14, and then your adulthood would start at 16. And so the length of adolescence pre-1900 was about a year and a half to two years. There's a little bit of time to go to maturity. In 1970, puberty started at age 13, about. Um, adulthood said it would begin in, when you're 18, 1970, so you know, with wars going on, Korean War, Vietnam War, but age 18, you're now an adult. So it was a span of five years. Now, in 2012, so even seven years ago, puberty is starting um, average 11.7. So puberty is starting younger and younger. Um, in 2012, it said that adulthood would start in your mid-20s. Not even like putting an age on it, but it's like, how lazy are we? <laughs> mid-20s. <laughs> At some point in your mid-20s, you'll become an adult. And so that's now 15 years. So the length of adolescence has now expanded, where it's not even just adolescence, but now there's a term called extended adolescence, and then young adulthood. We're just creating more names as it's lengthening, but the length of time between you're a child to you're now an adult has just gotten much larger. And so you can see where there's a confusion for adolescence to young adulthood of at what point do I become an adult? At what point will culture recognize and value me as an adult? Um, I'll ask this during um, staff training for any of our youth staff, and I'll say, how many of you feel like you're an adult? I'll get maybe a couple hands. There's a lot of this. I'm like, what does this mean? Are you like half a, an adult, half not? But many of them will say, I say, well, what makes you an adult or not an adult? A lot of times it has to do with um, being financially stable, um, being responsible for themselves, um, they all have different terms. Some of it is based on what their parents have communicated to them. Others, it's, well, this is what my understanding of being an adult is. And so for many of them, I'll say, okay, based on your understanding of what an adult is, I'm not an adult. I don't own a home. I'm not married. I don't have kids. So if that's your understanding of what it means to be an adult, then for me in my mid-30s, how am I living as a true adult if those are the things that and everyone has different definitions to it. So there's a confusion because everyone has different definitions. And so on an aspirin bottle, an adult dosage is 12 years old. At the DMV, you become an adult at 16 when you can drive a car. For alcohol, you can drink at 21. For a movie theater, depending on the rating, it's either age 13 or 17 to be able to go into a movie without parental permission. To vote, it's 18 years old. To rent a car, it's 25. To stay at a hotel at 16 years old, to book it yourself. To serve in the military is 18. To fly as an adult, it's two. <laughs> so you can see from two to 25, no wonder there's such a confusion for being an adult when we're getting mixed messages all the time, too, of when you become an adult. And so there's these early and mid and late stages of adolescence. Um, 
But the, the three biggest things that adolescents and then young adults are asking is these three main questions. One is um, identity, who am I, who do I want to become? The second is autonomy, what makes me unique and what do I uniquely have to offer to the world? And then affinity, to whom or to what do I want to belong? And so the process of adolescence is to help them answer these questions. And I really think the identity one is actually much bigger than just in the season of adolescence and young adulthood. I think that's a lifelong journey that we're on of understanding our identity and who we want to be and how we live. Um, but for teenagers to young adults, they're answering and they're asking these really, really big questions that will set them up for who they want to be as adults. Um, what we do here at camp is we look at those three questions and we point them to what does the Bible say in answering those questions? What does the gospel say? What does God say about our identity and how he's uniquely created us? And to what or to whom we, do we belong? We answer those questions to any of our youth programs throughout the year in light of what scripture says in answering those questions. So for example, one of our summers, it was back in 2013, and we were studying Philippians 3, 20 and 21, which says, but you're a citizen of another kingdom, and we eagerly await a savior from there. And so we were studying the whole book of Philippians over the course of the week, saying we are part of God's kingdom. That is, we are citizens of that. That's our identity. And we now live here as citizens of another kingdom. And so the tagline for that summer was live like you belong to another world. We were answering identity questions as well as affinity of how do you live out your identity when you belong to another kingdom, but you're here on earth. So we try to do that for every single summer, so knowing that so many students are asking these questions, and whether they've grown up in church or not, to answer that in light of what scripture says about these things. Um, within the phases of um, life, what's really interesting is that puberty um, is the second most traumatic experience physically that your body will go through in a natural course of life. There's unfortunately other things that we experience in life that does cause us trauma. But in a natural, this is part of being a human, the first one is birth. Birth to two years old, there's extreme changes from a newborn to a two-year-old, they're experiencing a lot of growth in really rapid succession. They're learning how to walk, they're experiencing the world. And then all of that repeats itself when you go through puberty. And all of a sudden your body has kick-started without any control of your own and things are changing and you're having to learn how to interact in the world in a new body and in a new way. And so what we've found is that there is a mirroring effect between these two stages of natural growth. And you can see the similarities even though there's different ages. And so a zero to a two-year-old is in the sampling phase. They're experiencing the world just by sampling and putting everything in their mouth, touching everything. My niece, Callie, when she was little, she would go up to an electrical socket and be like licking it and just trying to experience it. And we were like grabbing her and like, no, like don't put anything in your mouth, stop, that's not safe. But they're experiencing the world through touching and putting in their mouth, they're experiencing all of it, they're sampling it. Um, from three to seven, they're in the testing phase. A three to a seven-year-old is asking why to everything. They're just trying to understand the world that they live in. And so a three to a seven-year-old, uh, my other niece, Kimball, when she was, I think, like four, we were watching a TV show. It's called Once Upon a Time. This was years ago. She's actually turning nine today. But um, years ago, we were watching a TV show, and she was just asking why to everything. Why is the princess sad? Why is her hair like that? Why is he doing this? Why did they say that? Why is this gonna happen? And I was like, dude, Kimball, just chill. <laughs> like, can you just, if you watch it, it'll play out. But she just wanted to understand. She's asking why to everything. And then eight to 10 year olds, um, they're in the concluding phase. I think an eight to a 10 year old, they're the most confident people on the planet, <laughs> right? They know how the world works. I'm gonna be president one day. I'm gonna be an astronaut. These are my best friends. They are the most confident people because they've concluded, they've sampled, they've tested, and they've started to make some conclusions of this is how the world works and this is who I am. And then you see those very confident eight, nine, and 10-year-olds as the timid junior hires walking into middle school because it's now repeat. And so now the, they've experienced a huge change. They're not sure of like this body that they had figured out for all these years, but now it's very different. It smells weird. 
your clothes don't fit, you have these weird zits on your face, you feel insecure, awkward, they're experiencing all of this sudden change, and then what's interesting is they go back through sampling to testing to concluding. And so a junior hire has many of the same developmental traits as a zero to two-year-old. And, and I tell this to our staff, we don't treat our junior hires as toddlers. <laughs> We're not gonna patronize them in that way. But to understand their, their mindset of they're trying to understand and sample the world through a new body and a new lens. And so one of my, we are currently in a junior high week at Ponderosa, and I'm seeing this play out in like real time of just campers running around, eating as much ice cream as they can, and then getting sick and realizing, well, didn't you think that maybe that's not the best thing? Oh, it sounded like a good idea. And there's one time, there was many years ago, a junior high student ate a poisonous plant at Ponderosa and had a very extreme allergic reaction. And so my boss at the time was on the phone with like UC Davis Medical Center, just trying to figure out and identify this plant, and he had like blisters in his mouth. And we were like, oh man, like why did you, are you okay? Did someone dare you to do this? Were you put up to it? Are you not getting enough food? Like what's, what's wrong? And um, his response was, seemed like a good idea. <laughs> And just, like going around and experiencing like, oh, this looks kind of interesting, I'm gonna eat it. Um, when I was in uh, junior high, I became this tall in like seventh or eighth grade, like pretty quickly, I shot up. And I was a soccer player, I played a lot of soccer, had been playing for years, and there was this one indoor game where I could not stay on my feet. And so I'm running down the field, and the ball isn't even near me, and I just trip on my feet and just like fall flat on my face. And my parents and my coach were like, Kels, like tie your shoelaces or something. Like, what's wrong? And I was just running around, I was like, I don't know. And it was because I had grown used to playing this sport that I was really comfortable with, but now all of a sudden I had all this height, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I was tripping over my feet. And so they're experiencing the world, trying to sample and try to figure out how to learn to walk again, how to figure out what clothes are gonna fit you, all these things, like a toddler is, but it's because they're sampling the world in a new way, in a new body. Then from 13 to 17, it is high school students in the testing phase. They're asking why to everything. Now a three to a seven year old, they're asking why, just like trying to understand it. A high school student has a little bit more of the why. Prove to me why I should do this. And it's really interesting at uh, any of our youth programs, Junior hires come to camp and they're just excited for everything. They just get to play. It's really interesting to walk out on an opening session with a high school week and it's a lot of this. And I can see some of them are starting to kind of like tap along and be like, okay, I'm kind of, this is, looks kind of cool, but I'm not gonna show it yet. And we have to do some really intentional programming to break down some of those walls where then they feel like they can kind of take a deep breath and be themselves. But it's a lot of this and there's a lot of why. And they're testing, they're testing some really important things. They're testing to see, are you gonna, you say that you love me, you say that God loves me, prove it when I act like this. They're testing to figure out how far can I go um, before I'm written off. They're also testing, trying to figure out who they wanna be. Um, it's kind of like they're putting on different hats. They're trying on different hats, trying on different clothes to figure out what fits, what do I like, but then also they're watching other people's reactions to them. They're watching, do people like me more when I act this way, when I look this way? When I was uh, also in, uh, around that same age, I was probably 13 or 14, I remember going to Ross and trying on like this fun like kind of skater shirt. It was the Avril Lavigne era. And I was trying on like a skater shirt and kind of like the punk little uh, belt. And I remember thinking and like this conscious thought of, that's it, this is who I wanna be now. If anyone asks me, I'm gonna like skateboards and I'm gonna like skating. I need to throw away all the, art, the clothes I already have and this is my look and this is who I'm gonna be. It was this very kind of black and white thinking of I'm trying on these different clothes, but they're not doing it with necessary clothes, they're doing it with their personalities and with their behavior, um, with the words that they use, with the friendships that they choose. They're trying on these different clothes and they're trying to see, does this fit me? Do I like this? But then they're also gauging what other people's responses to them are. Do other people like me more? Or are they writing me off? And so they're reading a lot of that through testing to see who they wanna be. 
And then lastly, we get to young adults who are in the concluding stage, right? So we've built up to, now we're at the young adults, they're making the conclusions of, I know who I want to be, or I'm kind of figuring that out, and I'm starting to make some conclusions, and that's really necessary, and that's really good that they're starting to make conclusions of life and how they want to live in it. Uh, for junior hires, they're asking a lot of what questions, what are we doing? It's all, like, everything that we do programming-wise is around, like, what's going to be happening next. For high schoolers, meaning is developed through relationships. So they're asking more of who's going to be there and who do other people think that I am. It's all based on relationships. For young adults, in the concluding stage, it's they want significance. They want there to be a purpose. And so they're asking a lot of why. Why is this? Not in, like, the testing way, but more out of why should this be as important as it is? What's the purpose and the significance in this? Young adults want to contribute. They want to have a purpose and a significance in the way that they live. And so they develop a lot of meaning around whatever is significant to them. Um, some of my most frustrating conversations in my job has been with some of the summer staff and interns who are deep in the concluding phase. Um, and I've tried to not have uh, an inauthentic poker face, <laughs> but I've tried to take a deep breath whenever I'm listening and to, to understand they're still just trying to figure out how the world works, and they're making conclusions, and that is a great thing. And I'll tell summer staff what I just told to you guys. Like Some of my most frustrating conversations aren't with parents or with campers who are you know, doing whatever at camp. It's actually with summer staff who um, are so set in their concluding ways. Um, and what I remind them is stay teachable. It is good to, for you to make conclusions about who you want to be and about life in this world, but to stay teachable because you'll never fully arrive. You'll never have it fully figured out. And it's a life process of continuing to grow as an adult. Um, I remember when I was a freshman at Point Loma, and I had this, again, this conscious thought as I was walking through the halls, and it was like maybe a couple months into being a freshman year, and I thought, you know what? I have three and a half more years here, so when I graduate, I want to know exactly how I'm gonna vote like, on these different topics, and I wanna know exactly what like, Christian denomination I wanna be part of, and when I think about these theological issues, I wanna know exactly like, what money I'm gonna give to, like, to what charities or whatever. I was like, I was planning for when I graduate, I'm never going to learn another new thing in my life, so I have to have it all figured out now. <laughs> but it was a very conscious thought, and there's actually, I don't know the term for it, but when I went back to work at Point Loma, there is a very distinct season, there's a term for it, of freshmen in college will have this moment, and I was reading the synopsis of it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was that moment for me, of they think that they'll have it all figured out, and they're setting themselves up to think, I'm going to have it all figured out at this point. And then graduation comes, and you realize, oh no, like, there's still so much more for me to learn. And I, that was true for myself. I had more questions when I left than answers. And I think that's in some ways part of college is to help continue to learn how to ask questions. So in some of these conversations with summer staff, it's the, well, I took a course um, this last semester on this topic. And I've, um, I'm a communications major. And so this is, I'm like an expert in what this topic is. So if any of you want to like learn more, you can come and find me. Um, and I'd love to talk to you more, but I really think like this, these are all the plights of humanity and these are the things that we need to do more of. And I actually had that almost quote just a couple weeks ago. And it was right after I had done this training and I just kind of stood there and just kind of nodded and was like, they want to contribute. They have, they want to, to have, they have found something that is significant to them and they want to be part of it. Those are great things that I'd want to help them encourage while also nodding and saying, remain teachable, continue to ask questions, and there's a whole lot more for you to learn um, as you continue to grow. So for young adults, they're in the concluding stage. And so some of the things that they need um, they need a focus in relationships um, for there to be a participation in meaningful activity, activities. Things for us to do is to be available and to know that they're asking a lot of why questions as they're continuing to see how the world works, but also starting to make conclusions about themselves. 
Um, some of the um, part of my job is to uh, foster the intern program for the interns who are here from September to September. Um, and we have a really extensive reading curriculum that we go through together, learning a lot of these different things about personal identity and professional development. Um, I think two of the books that have stood out the most to me, though, um, they're not written by Christian authors or from a Christian perspective, but they still have a lot of great insight and information. And one of them is called The Defining Decade, and it's by a woman named Dr. Meg Jay. Um, she also has a TED Talk that she's really well known for. Um, and so if you would rather just listen to the TED Talk, it's, it's like 30 minutes nutshell of her whole book. But she talks about um, these three different areas of uh, work, love and relationships, and then the brain and the body, and how she as a therapist and as a doctor was realizing that many people in their 20s were saying, I'll figure that out in my 30s, rather than using their 20s well and realizing that their dream job just wasn't going to fall in their lap. And it wasn't the person that they were going to want to start a family with weren't just going to appear randomly. And so how do we use our 20s well to set up for our 30s rather than getting to your 30s and realizing, oh, no, I, I'm seeing all my friends have all of the things that they are like building in their career but I haven't been using all this time, and so they're trying to play catch-up. So it's called The Defining Decade. Oh, Dr. Meg J, J-A-Y. And then the other one that I've read is called Extreme Ownership, and it's by um, these two Navy SEALs who are highly decorated for some of the uh, work that they've done in the war in Afghanistan. It's not a, a military book. It's not uh, one that's pro-war or anything like that. It's more of the principles that they learned about leadership on the battlefield that they then realized this is helping us in knowing how to train these elite soldiers, but some of these principles can be applied to all other areas of life. It's not just within like military tactics. And so I'm sometimes hesitant to recommend that book because they do use a lot of their experiences in um, the war in Afghanistan, and they, they talk explicitly about some of those things, not in a glorifying type of way, but more out of, like, practically, this is how it played out. Um, and so just knowing that everyone has, you know, different views of military and war in Iraq and all of that, know that it's not the point of the book, though. They really use that just as an example of talking about um, the leadership principles that they learned. And I think it's this, um, it's one of the best leadership books I've read in a while, called Extreme Ownership. The, um, the authors are, doc, not Dr., uh, Jocko Willink and then Leif Babin. So Willink and Babin. Um, it's called Extreme Ownership. They have a number of other books that have been coming out as well. But I think that piece, they talk a lot about ownership. And I feel like ownership is a really big part of what I think is lacking right now um, in young adults being ready to step into adulthood. Um, because it talks a lot about ownership and being responsible. Like, how do you take responsibility for your life and everything within your care? And we don't often talk about ownership. Instead, we talk about, oh, I just can't adult right now. <laughs> adulting is hard for me today. We have shirts that say adulting is hard or wake me up when it's time to adult. It's like, what? <laughs> when did that just become a, a verb or kind of like a catchphrase? But I think the ownership piece, I think, is a piece that is so... Um, necessary to become an adult, of that process of autonomy of, all right, I am now uh, responsible for myself. I'm now needing to make choices that are going to affect my life and affect others around me. Um, that's something that uh, she talks about in Defining Decade of you can't choose a family that you're born into, but you can choose a family that you want to start. So you can choose your family um, if that's something that you want to have in life, choosing who you're going to have as a mate and then how you're going to raise your kids, you can choose your family. And so taking ownership in how you're going to do that as an adult. Um, within my own family, I, for a number of years, um, was seeing a counselor. Um, I know people have a lot of different views of, um, especially within um, Christianity, of therapy and counseling, things like that. But for myself, it was a really... Uh, necessary point for me to do some processing. And so I saw a counselor for four years. Um, for myself, it was probably one of the, the healthiest decisions I made as an adult. Um, and I was nervous to tell my parents, I was 25 at the time, 26, and I was nervous to tell my parents of, I think I need to see a counselor. There are some things that I am needing to kind of figure out. And they were so supportive when I went and I talked with them, saying, I think I need to see a counselor. 
and they just said, how can we love you and how can we support you through this? So I saw a counselor for four years and during that time was processing a lot with, um, with them about myself, about my family, about work. There's a lot of things that we processed through. And I learned a lot about family dynamics through that because as I was in my mid-20s, and it was just kind of the season of life, my younger brother was in his early 20s, and my youngest sister was just on the cusp of turning 20, and then my older sister was in her late 20s. So we're like deep in the 20s range, all trying to figure things out in different seasons of life. And one of the things that um, my counselor had shared with me was a family learns how to do a dance and they learn who plays what part, and you kind of are so used to doing this dance together. But then one person saying, hey, I wanna do things a little differently, it throws everybody off. All of a sudden, the routine changes, and everyone has to relearn the dance together. And I've spent time thinking about that with when my older sister entered young adulthood, how that affected our family, when I then entered adulthood, my younger brother, my younger sister, and it takes time for a family to figure out a new dance with each other. Um, in one of those conversations, um, a family member was gonna come live with my family, and um, this is a family member that, that um, we have a lot of great history with, um, a lot of good family memories with. Um, there were some hard things that had been going on within, um, within their life, but they were gonna come live at my parents' house. And for a season, I was really upset about it. And I didn't necessarily communicate that well at the outset, but I was really upset about it, not because um, this family member was a bad person or they had done anything like wrong within our family. It was more out of, this is gonna affect our family dynamic. And it was that sense of, we're just learning how to be a family dynamic with now like nieces and nephew and like a family growing. And this person kind of re-entering and living within the home is going to affect in some different ways. So it was more that, that I was just kind of trying to process. And so I remember going home to my parents' house and being upset that this person was going to come and live with us, but trying to figure out why that was. And so I remember just talking with uh, my mom about it around the table. And she was like, Kels, that's a great point. And she brought in my dad. And so the three of us sat around. I was in tears. I was emotional. But it was a very defining moment for myself, feeling like I was having an adult conversation with my parents. And being able to, to recognize I will always be their child, but I was no longer a child's age. And it was like the kids at the kids' table, my siblings and I and my cousins, all at different points were like, we kind of want to sit at the adult table, but we feel like we're still at the kids' table, so how do we ask how can we sit, how can we make room at the adult table for us to have like adult conversations as a whole family together? And things that have been going on within our family that as a kid, I'd never been aware of, but for my parents, for my aunt and uncle and grandma, for them to recognize my siblings and my cousins and I as, okay, you're now adults, so let's have this conversation all together. It meant that all of us needed to like relearn that dance together and kind of get used to that. It's been interesting to see that with my youngest sister. She's in her uh, late 20s, but she, as the baby of the family, she got carted around to every soccer tournament, all the karate, game, uh, karate tournaments, everything that my older sister, my brother and I were doing, she had just carted around to everything, the baby of the family. And so when she went away to college and then would come back, and she was just a little different, and not in a bad way, but just like, oh, the, the teenager at home, who was just very easygoing, just like, yeah, do, I'll do whatever. All of a sudden, she had gone away to, col from, to college and was coming back and had thoughts and had opinions and was trying to figure out how to share them. But for the five of us being so used to our dynamic, for her to be sitting in her spot at the table and be like, I have a thought, I have something, like, let me, let me share. And for the five of us to realize like, oh, there's another person here at the table. We have known you your whole life, but you're, you're changing and you're growing, we need to now make space for you to kind of enter and to make a new dance. And so what I've found, again, I'm not a parent, I don't know, I talk with parents all the time and they'll ask for like, what should I do in this situation? I'm like, I have your student for a week, you have them for life, <laughs> so here are some things that I know, but I don't know what it's like to be a parent and to know what it's like to have 
a child that you've given birth to and you've raised for them to now be adults and trying to make their own decisions. I can imagine though, and what I've heard from my parents, that that is extremely gut-wrenching and hard and a beautiful process, but a really hard one as well. So the thing that helped me as a young adult was uh, my parents set milestones for us that were really, really helpful. One was when I was entering puberty, I had a weekend away with my mom. And she talked with me about this is what life is gonna look like when you're going through puberty. And then in, the, in mid high school, I went and had a date with my dad. And he showed me this is what it looks like for a man to treat you with respect. And then when I started as an intern here at Mount Hermon, um, and I was gonna start making a regular paycheck, there was one weekend I went home and my mom took me around to all the places or like the, I think the DMV, AAA, and um, AT&T. And it was to go put all like my phone, my car insurance, and my, like, my license and my permanent address in my name and to be responsible for, it's time for you to start paying for these things. We've covered you in school. Now it's your turn to start um, putting your money to paying and being responsible for paying a bill. And so in each of these, like at the sampling season, junior high, high school, and then young, young adult, I had these milestone moments of my parents helping me in like better understanding what I was stepping into, but then also, all right, now you're an adult. It's time to start uh, making some of these decisions for yourself. Um, and I think those are practices that I've seen that if I'm ever a parent one day, I'd want to adopt and to have um, for my kids as well because it was so beneficial for me. There was one moment um, that it was only a couple years ago. So I had been working here for a number of years and there was something where there was a bill that had been sent to my parents' house rather than to my address here. And so uh, when I went home for the weekend, uh, my mom was reminding me, saying like, oh, Kels, there's this, um, this bill that needs to get paid. Do you want any help with it? Do you want me to like, take it to the post office? I can mail it for you. And I kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And I was like, yeah, mom, I'll take care of it. I'll, I'm, I know, I take care of my bills each month. I got it. And she kept bringing it up. And so I started feeling frustrated. And I remember thinking like, oh, I feel frustrated. And rather than just be frustrated, I should just have a conversation with her. I'm not really sure why I'm frustrated by this, and I know it's not her, but what is it that I'm frustrated about? And it was, uh, we ended up having a conversation, and I expressed, like, I'm a little frustrated, and I think it has to do with, like, I'm an adult. I, when I'm working at Mount Hermon and my life here, you guys aren't taking care of these things for me, and, and so let me take care of this. Like, let me be an adult and take care of this. And she had a great point of saying like, but I'm just trying to help because if you don't pay on time, you're gonna have a fee. And I was like, yeah, I know, but maybe that's how I need to learn. Um, and so what I was glad that I did was that I spoke up to my mom and I said, hey, I'm frustrated about this and it's not you, it's, it's this. I think I'm trying to figure out like, I, I wanna be an adult, so let me be an adult and even when it's suffer the consequences. But her response was so great because she just very graciously was like, all right, Kelsey, you're right, you're an adult. So if, even if that means taking the consequences, and she said, but I'm curious what your response will be if you're a mom one day and what conversation you'd have with your kid in this situation. And I remember thinking, oh man, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, as a young adult, wanted to speak up and be like, hey, let me take care of myself, but I also, it, it took it as a teachable moment for myself of, I don't know what it's like to be in her shoes. I don't know what it's like to be a mom who's watching her kids that she's taught and taken care of for all of these years and then letting them fly free, but then also watching them suffer some of the consequences. I don't know what that is like, and I imagine that that is really, really hard. And so I think it was a place where we could meet each other in the middle and say, let's do this together, even when it's hard, and I think the key part is keeping conversations open. I needed to have good conversations with my parents, and I'm really, really glad that they were open to having those conversations with me and creating space at the adult table, basically, for myself and my siblings. I know I've been talking for quite a bit, so I'm gonna open it up for, we have a little bit of time for lunch, but any questions or comments? Um, again, anything that I can help with? Like a career choice or just in life or? 
You know, I, I'll have summer staff ask me that question a lot, and what, what I at least found, there are some people who know at a young age, I know I want to be a teacher, I know I want to be a doctor, and they like have that, they feel like God has put that calling on their life. Others, it's more of, I really enjoy these different things, and so I'd love to be able to do these things, but I'm not really sure what that could look like, and that was at least true in my life, and when I see a little bit more apparent, and so what I'll often say to summer staff is um, take stock of the things that you really feel like you're thriving in. Where it's like the moments where you're like, oh, I was made for this. Or there's a part of me that like, kind of comes alive in this type of situation. And it may not be specifically like a vocation, vocational job that you're doing, but more of, for me, it was I love working with youth and young adults. I could be doing that in a variety of different ways but it's something that plays out here at Mount Hermon in a really cool way. But I could do it in other places. And so it was recognizing, oh, I love doing something that's really creative. I love serving youth and young adults. There's something I really find joy in that. I love getting to tell other people about Jesus. And so it was taking note of the things that I really loved and then just trying out, kind of one step at a time, the things that maybe this will give me some, some career capital of I'll have experience in a ministry setting, or I have the experience in some of these creative avenues. And so kind of taking stock of the things that they really love, and then just taking a year, two years of like, uh, or summer jobs that will give them experience, and then also test out, do I really want to do something a little bit more like this? My sister, that was true for her, she wanted to be a teacher. She loved being at Ponderosa as a camper, but she knew she wanted to teach a specific age, but she wasn't sure like what, what grade. So she intentionally signed up to be at Redwood Camp to then have experience working with second graders to sixth graders and then in that process realized, oh, I don't enjoy working with second graders. They're too little. I really love fifth and sixth grade. And so it was from experience, but she knew enough to then put herself in a place where she'd get that experience and then in that took stock of, oh, I think I actually like this a little bit more and kind of narrowed it down a little bit more. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there's a widening gap of people who don't want to go to college and yet jobs that are saying you need to have this many years of experience or a master's degree to have these jobs. And so it's a widening gap now of very good reasons to not go away to college um, because of the financial stresses that it creates. But then also jobs are now becoming pickier and pickier of what type of degree. Like a bachelor's doesn't count now. You need a master's. And so... Um, um, I think that there's a lot of really great gap year opportunities. Um, I think that there's something that Europe and Australia are doing really, really well that America's a little behind in, and it's the gap year. And it's the going away and having like a service opportunity for two years, so 18 to 20. And in some ways, it's work all the other stuff out of your system. Um, so that there was a shift for myself too. My junior year, I started to realize, oh, I'm really passionate about these topics. I want to... I want to do well in this, not just for the grade, but because I actually want to learn it. And I think that's what they've realized is 18, 19, in some ways, those two years in college, not that they're a wash, but in some settings they are. And giving them opportunity to go work those things out and to serve, um, whether that's um, service opportunities or crew, uh, crew um, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, um, there's a lot of different like mission opportunities that are great in kind of working through those two years so that then when at their 20 and 21 realizing oh i think i actually want to do this a little bit more and start to settle down so i think a gap year program is great because it puts them also within an environment of other people that are going through the same thing um, and i think i think a lot of it has to do with the financial financial piece and so that's really interesting that for Gen Z, they're wanting to be more financially sustainable and to see that play out in them choosing a different education path that hasn't necessarily been set before by millennials and Gen X and, and everyone else. So um, I think it's kind of a roundabout way to answer. I think there are more people that feel in that same boat. Um, what's really hard is that that's the same age group of people that are leaving the church as well. And so if... It's, if I were to say something to the church as a whole, it would be, here's a group of people that are needing community, but they're leaving for these reasons. So what are some ways that we can keep them 
to be able to process some of the big questions that they have um, and for them to have that within the church um, or within small groups. Um, I know I'm kind of dancing around a lot of different topics. I'm not really, I don't know if I'm, whatever, whatever I'm saying is being helpful for you, but I think having people, the fact that your older, that your older kids are wanting to help them, I think that is huge. And I feel like for them to be able to pass on what they wish that they had had, I think that itself might be what your younger kids need the help in, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's more in, um, in conversations with students. You know, I'll ask them about, you know, it's really interesting. I'll say like, hey, no student has a Facebook anymore. Uh, junior high and high school students, I'll ask them, like, hey, do you guys have a Facebook? And they're like, no. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I didn't know it's a thing. For them, it's all either Instagram or Snapchat. Even Instagram, they're like, oh, that's like the older, like that's my, my older sibling or that's my parents. Or So I think it's more not necessarily because they don't like social media, but because they don't want to do anything that their parents are doing. And parents, as soon as parents got on Facebook, students left. <laughs> and they went and got Instagram instead. Um, so I think it's more out of conversations with them. I think that there are some, there's a lot of research of um, the way that um, the internet and social media is like rewiring our brain and like the chemicals in our brain. There's a lot of research for that. I recently heard of a study that they're wondering if the increase in depression and anxiety is because we spend most of our day in a hunched over position like this. And so physiologically, what that's doing to our bodies of we're always having our head down in our own little world. And if that physical posture is starting to do something to the rest of our body where depression and anxiety are on the rise. So I think the research is everything is so new that everyone's like kind of hopping on board of trying to figure out like kind of these projections or this research, but it's also kind of waiting to see it play out. And so I think it's more out of conversations with students that more often than not, there are people that are saying, I'm gonna take a social media break, or I'd much rather um, do something different and wanting to be actually connected. Um, their hyper-connectedness to each other is uh, also then met with them feeling completely isolated and lonely, which then feeds into the suicide rate as well. And so they are so connected and yet feel so alone. And I think that truth is becoming more known to them of people saying that, of just because you're connected to someone online doesn't mean you actually have a connection with them and they still feel lonely. So I think it's that, of realizing all these things that they thought would help them aren't helping them or are in some cases hurting them. And I think that's becoming more and more known as people are talking about it more. But I think a lot of the research is yet to be seen as they're getting older. It's more of hypothesis at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, TheCollegeMyth.com is a free book there, and it's uh, for having a conversation that's college right or not, and alternatives. Uh, TheCollegeMyth.com. Anyway, the uh, risk aversion. Yeah. And uh, relationships. Yeah, I um, I actually had a conversation with a parent during week one. And something that she had said was um, another trait that we're seeing in especially millennials, the younger ones, um, and Gen Z, is a lack of perseverance. Because there's so many choices, and it's the, if this doesn't work out, or if this doesn't make me happy, I'm just going to find something else. And so there is a pretty huge lack of perseverance. To, and you see that within careers, um, people staying at a job for a long length of time and like growing within the company is getting less and less because they're moving to another job and they're kind of hopping around every couple of years. And then we see that same within churches and like um, young adults wanting to serve or to volunteer. Once it gets hard, oftentimes they'll, they'll jump um, and they'll go to another ministry opportunity that'll give them more joy. And then I think we're seeing that in relationships. Um, and so 
the divorce rate is just as true, just as high, if not higher, among Christians as non-Christians. And um, I think it's true in relationships of this is not what I signed up for. This doesn't make me happy. So I'm going to move on to whatever will make me happy. And so there's this pursuit of happiness and this lack of perseverance that is pretty prevalent in millennials and then Gen Z as well. And we see that kind of filter out into a lot of different areas. And so I think it's, it's the, they're not taking risks because once something gets hard, they jump ship and move to something else that's not as hard. Yeah. Weddings? Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much of that is just within um, celebrity culture, or I also don't know how much of it has to do with Instagram and influencers on Instagram and um, the what you're posting of like what photos and I think that there's a I think the amount people spend on weddings is just unreal um, so I think it's probably including the bride and groom to then be able to have the party that they want to have but also the party that they can then post and tell their friends about um, yeah uh-huh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I've seen that trend. Yeah, I don't know necessarily. Yeah, I think everyone is so different in what they and what they want, but I think there is uh, more of an understanding culturally of like how much money should be set in a wedding. I don't necessarily know why, why that is, but more of just like a cultural thing of the emphasis of a big wedding and a really lavish one. But I think it really plays into maybe those two people and more of the context of what experiences they've had or what their parents have modeled for them. I think it'd be more out of whatever the context of them is. So, yeah. Yeah, it was actually a website, and I um, can give it to you. Um, it was just one that I found. Um, and I know there's a lot of really great books out there as well, but this was the one that I pulled a lot of the information from. Um, it's, <laughs> it's Community Rising, all one word. Community Rising, and then dot, um, it says Kasasa, K-A-S-A-S-A dot com. And it was there that you can search for um, the different millennia- millennials, Gen Z, all of that. But communityrising.kasasa, K-A-S-A-S-A dot com. Yeah. Yeah. They've had that term for, um, let me look, I think it's millennials and Gen Z have both been... Um, Actually, it's Gen Z. So millennials are also considered Gen Y or Gen Me. It's uh, kind of the narcissistic type of um, generation. But then the I generation is um, a nickname for the Gen Z as well. So we'll kind of see which one sticks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, you know, that's a great question. I think um, I think it was a little bit more of a rebellious thing to do in the 80s and 90s. So I don't necessarily know when it became a culturally acceptable thing other than potentially those who had been the rebellious teenagers who had those tattoos then became the adults who were then hiring <laughs> for other people. So I wonder if it was those people in the 80s and 90s are now the adults who are the hiring managers for other positions they have the tattoos, so they've now been saying, oh, it's actually okay. Um, so it could be, could be some of that. Uh, the 90s were kind of the Seattle grunge era. So I think tattoos, piercing kind of fit in whatever, the, just like the wardrobe of that era was, um, especially in the early 90s. But I think, it, um, I think it's just becoming more, more uh, natural in the sense of, or more, maybe not natural, but like culturally acceptable 
in the emphasis in our culture for choice um, and for you to be able to choose whatever makes you happy, choose whoever you want to be, choose however you want to look. Um, I think it's the same with dyeing your hair whatever color, changing your, um, your eye color and having different lenses, um, however you want to do your makeup, whatever you want to wear, whatever kind of art you want to put permanently on your body or piercings. I think it's also in like the sense of choice and wanting to uh, be unique. But if everyone is doing the same thing, um, <laughs> then no one's necessarily unique. So, um, so I think it's that. I think it is a little bit more in um, we want choice and we want to be unique and to be able to put a tattoo on your body or have a piercing is a way to make yourself different than others in some ways. I think it's all kind of wrapped together in that. Um, something really interesting to note is if you ever see someone with a semicolon tattoo, that actually has, is a really uh, cool, meaningful symbol, and it means that they've had either experience with suicide but decided not to take their own life, um, and that they're, they didn't want to put a period in their life, but it's a semicolon, and that there's more to life than what they've experienced. So if you, there are some significant tattoos that if you see them, to at least ask about it because there could be some really cool things about somebody's life and they've chosen to express that to make that known in a public way so that people will ask them and they can show themselves as survivors of it so well really quick um, I'll stay back for any questions I want to make sure you guys get to lunch but many times people will ask me they're like man Millennials and Gen Z it just seems like the world is just falling apart and what is the church gonna look like in a few years um, but I will often tell people because they'll see the Gen Z and Millennials are members of the church and they're going to grow into church leadership. And so many people will say, gosh, it just seems like the world is just falling apart one day at a time. And I will often say, yes, the world is an awful place, but I wish you could see um, the Forest View meeting room where high school students and junior high students are just worshiping Jesus. Or to go up to the forum where there's 200 junior high, high school, or young adults who are loving Jesus and being led one step closer to him. And so yes, our world has always been a broken place, but I have a lot of hope. The, the current generation, the millennials, like there is a lot of young adults who are wanting to be given a place to have significance and they love and are pursuing Jesus and are helping those that are coming after them. So I have a lot of hope in what this next generation is going to look like. And if you have any other questions about what it's like to be a parent of a young adult, my parents are right over here. <laughs> so yeah, they can add a little bit more. So thank you guys for coming and I'll be here for any other questions that you might have. <clears throat> Yeah. I was going to say, you're an impressive person. Oh.